Hello and welcome to the program. I am Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat and with me is the Australian journalist, author and war correspondent Lynn O'Donnell calling in from Kabul where the US forces, the US and allied forces I should add, are currently withdrawing after a 20-year war which uh, as many of us realise is still ongoing. Lynn, welcome to the program. Thanks Luke, thanks for having me. How are things in Kabul? How are the Afghans and the many different ethnic groups of Afghans, how are they coping with the withdrawal? That's a really complicated question. What I have found since I've been back here is that, and to my surprise, was that many people across the spectrum, from government into all uh, levels of society and professions, were surprised at the decision by the Biden administration to follow through on the decision that Donald Trump had made um, to withdraw. Um, As you know, uh, the original date for the withdrawal was May the 1st. Biden pushed that back to uh, the anniversary of the event that started at all the 9-11 attacks on the United States. But the retrograde has been going on for some months anyway, and it's expected that the US and NATO and partners' presence here will be done and dusted by August. Um, It's caused a lot of trepidation. People are pretty... There's a feeling of abandonment and fear that whatever happens next will happen without any, any real support. I don't think that's the case, but that is definitely the feeling. Right, two strands there. One of the big complaints back in the 1990s, apart from Afghan donor fatigue, was that the Afghans felt abandoned because they had backed the West against the Soviet occupation. And once the Soviets had left, there was nothing there for them but civil war. And the impression I'm getting is there's a fear that that will happen again. And another comparison which is being drawn is with the abandonment of South Vietnam in 1975, when the Americans pulled out, the communists rolled in, and there goes a country. Well, I don't think that there is any question that financial and logistical support from the United States and from NATO uh, will continue. I think that that's a given, and NATO has said as such, Jen um, Stoltenberg has, has said it a couple of times in the last month or so, and as we know, he wouldn't be saying that if he didn't have the um, the green light to say so from uh, Washington. Right. Uh, so that will continue. One of the surprises, and and it's been said, you know, the, that support will continue until 2024 anyway. That's mm-hmm. already in the fine print. One of the surprises, though, is the withdrawal of support for the Afghan Air Force, and in fighting this war, air assets have been very important. I think the Afghans are going to have to work that one out for themselves. They had been hoping that they could retire the old um, Russian helicopters and they've been retiring pilots and mechanics who are competent on, on, on those assets. They might have to bring them back. So that will be a little bit of a time lag and that might cause them some problems on the battlefield. Um, there's also the contractors. This has been largely a war supported by contractors, as you know. And mm-hmm. so uh, what happens to them? Are the contracts rewritten? How many um, will be able to stay? Um, I think that the Taliban expected that part of the agreement with the United States would be that the contractors also go. But the other thing that we've got to take into account is that the Taliban have got now something that they haven't had, certainly didn't had during those woe-begotten five years that they actually ran the country between right. 1996 and 2001, which is political legitimacy. 
Right. Now, if you have a Saigon-style helicopters off the roof of the U.S. Embassy, uh, desperate departure from Kabul because the Taliban have got their, you know, their blokes with AKs in shooting everything that moves that's not one of them, they lose that legitimacy. And with the legitimacy comes diplomatic recognition, financial and aid support. And right. in the 20 years that have passed since they got kicked out of, of what passed for government here, they've realised that they can't do it. Wherever they have a presence in Afghanistan, what they don't do is governance. They just haven't got the ability to do it. So I think that there is a realisation that that's not going to happen. Political legitimacy is everything to them. Does that make sense? It certainly does. I remember back in the 90s, they were constantly chasing... Uh political legitimacy. They would turn up at the UN every year at the Credentials Committee, hand over their papers and ask to be recognised as a legitimate head of state, and they were always knocked back. That was held by uh, Bernard Rahadine and uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud. Yeah. Forgive my pronunciations, but it was a while ago. Yeah. But they really did crave that, 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 that legitimacy. But when you look at even their tactics on the battlefield, it's always hit and run. That They take yeah, over... There's they, nothing they, that they can really offer. Right. Yeah. You know, they, they would take over a village in the middle of a province and the only people living in the province are, are scattered around these villages and then they would move on. The people left behind would wave the flag and they would drive off in their convoys and then claim to have taken another like another village or another district, another province, and then at the same time they weren't actually there running them. Well, they can't rather run anything. Um, that's been proven even in places where they have a presence now, as I mentioned before. They don't mm. actually run anything. They don't provide health, education, infrastructure, um, right. maintenance, um, all of the things that you expect governance to bring. I mean, the Wall Street Journal ran a story last week that referred to Taliban government governance um, out yep. in the boonies. And really, anyone who's been, who's been paying attention for 25 years knows that governance is not what the Taliban do. It's not what they're offering. And even on those um, occasions that they do take over cities and run the, the government out of town for a bit, it's only for three or four days. It's only a show of force. Exactly. And, um, and, yep. and then they're pushed out again. So, you know, there are some wild assertions made about what is going to happen here after September 11, as there were what was going to happen here after May the 1st. And really, Luke, in, in, mm. in my inexpert... Um, but long-term observation of it here, I think it'll be life as normal until they until they work out what sort of a government they want that includes the Taliban mm -hmm. in the corner of the room. But they're not going to be running the country. Going back to what you were saying earlier, why do you think, or what is the most considered opinion as to why Biden continued on with this policy initiated by Trump when... Obviously, the two men were, the two presidents were at odds on pretty much everything. Why is he following through on this policy? Well, while um, I was waiting for the decision to be made, I reread Bob Woodward's book, Obama's Wars. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that book is about the decision making process for the surge in 2009 10, uh, when the number of US troops here spiked up to, what was it, 110,000 or, or something? It's a lot. Um, and yeah, and Biden and the people who are around him now were very much in the small footprint uh, and with the CT presence camp. And that includes Blinken, who's now his Secretary of State, and Sullivan, who's a, Jake Sullivan, who's a, um, who's a senior advisor. 
And so I wasn't really surprised that the decision that he made was to leave. And the other thing that he said himself at the time was that this is a deal that was made on behalf of the United States. Biden right. doesn't want to have a large military presence here. He, he has always been a supporter of a counterterrorism presence. And what they've said is we will do counterterrorism and monitor the situation from outside. And if and when we are needed, we will be back. The other thing about that, though, is that I've never really seen the U.S. leave anywhere. Yeah, I agree. Um, they've always got the keys, right? Yeah. Um, I remember like when I came to Germany. Well, well, it, well, even in Thailand, there's a base um, that I can't remember the name of, shamefully, off the top of my head, that the Americans purportedly left. But when I came to Southeast Asia to cover the tsunami impact, I went down to that base and I flew out of it on a USC-130 because someone turned up with the keys. You know right. What I mean? It's like, yes. they might not be there in force, but they've got the keys. And a few years ago, I went down to what had been uh, the Bastion base in southern Afghanistan mm -hmm. with the Afghan National Army. And there in the corner was a very well cordoned off and what seemed to be a very well kept little space with good quality air conditioners. And I said to someone, what's going on over there? And the answer was, oh, that's the Americans. <laughs> so we know, that they're, we know that they're around. And I think that the the possibility that there will be, you know, a CIA-style counterterrorism monitoring fighting force gives many Afghans um, a lot of peace of mind that they're not being left alone and won't be left alone. Right. Uh, is there still a future role there for drones? Uh, you mentioned uh, the lack of air support. I'm just wondering if uh, uh, that includes drones or is that a separate military well, operational you talk about air support it's usually the the um the afghan national army helicopters and fighter jets that are supported and provided by the united states i think that the future is drones don't you yeah absolutely i think that if there's ever a uh, naval conflict in the south china sea i think it's going to have more to do with drones than it will battleships I think they're going to be like mozzies in our future. Oh, <laughs> God, yes. them away. <laughs> in, in, indeed. Are you detecting any differences there between the Pashtu, the, uh, the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, the Hazaras, uh, all very different ethnic groups with old allegiances and old rivalries? How are they, are they coalescing on this? And also the perennial question about Afghan women. How are they faring amid all this? On the ethnic and sectarian side of things, I think that that's a really interesting question that isn't really being looked at very closely. A couple of weeks ago, Abdul Rashid Dostum, now mm -hmm. Marshal Dostum, who was the vice president for some time under Ghani's first term, uh, President Ashraf Ghani's first term, that is, is the leader of the Uzbek community here. There's not a lot of Uzbek, Uzbeks, but Dostum punches above his weight. Right. Um, President Ghani is a micromanager, and we've known that for a long time, but somebody who works very closely in his inner circle uh, last week told me that the number of decisions that President Ghani makes is really quite breathtaking. Everything has to be signed off. The colour of the tablecloths in the palace canteen, the, the names of people who are at director general level, at um, provincial governor level, deputy uh, minister level, everything that, that they do also has to be signed off by the president personally. 
As a result of this, there's not a lot of high-quality decision-making going on. That means thousands of decisions being made by one person in a very complex country, in very complex circumstances every month. A couple of months ago, he appointed a Pashtun governor to Faryab province up in the north. Faryab is part of Dostum's Uzbek landscape. And so Dostum uh, pushed ahead with getting people to go out in the streets and make um, objections to this appointment. And he used democracy to ostensibly put forward candidates for governor um, that he approved of, that he said would be voted for by the people of Faryab province. And there were um, television and radio and newspaper stories in the local media saying, quoting people saying, anyone Dostum wants is fine by me. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, this is a very dangerous ethnic uh, mix here, and Dostum knows very well how to use it. Then in the Panjshir Valley, you have Tajiks. The Panjshir Valley is where Ahmad Shah Massoud comes from, who is a national hero. It doesn't matter where you go. There are billboards and photographs everywhere. They're in the back of in back window of cars and billboards on the streets. His photo is everywhere. He's the man who fought the Taliban and uh, kept them out of the, the north and out of the Panjshir, and he was murdered two days before the 9-11 attacks by al-Qaeda operatives pretending to be TV reporters. Yes. They hit a, hit a bomb in their TV camera and they blew him up. His son is called Ahmad Masood, and he is 32, and he is a very well-educated, erudite young man, and he is building a cult of his own personality in the Panjshir, and he is very well-liked. He's giving hope to people of other ethnicities, including Hazaras, who we'll get to in a moment, mm -hmm. if you don't mind. No, that's and, fine. Um, he's also, because he's young, he's representative of the demographic. 70% of Afghans' population, which is around 38 to 40 million, are under 30 years old. That's right. Astounding. I did notice the population they, figures have significantly changed since I was last there. Yeah, and that means that uh, these people have bought into the dem democratic experiment that the West has imposed. Mm -hmm. They are anti-Taliban. They are pro-modernity. They want Afghanistan to be part of the, you know, the world community of nations. They have iPhones. They have movies, Bollywood, you name it. And they see Ahmad Shah Massoud as one of them. Now, the Hazaras, another ethnic community, are predominantly Shia, whereas the rest of the country are Sunni. They are based in their own region in the centre of the country called Bamiyan province or Hazarajat. Mm -hmm. And they are and have been for more than a century routinely discriminated against in terrible, terrible ways. And in recent uh, months, a girls' school was bombed. Right. Terribly, um, uh, almost 100 little girls, well, little girls, 17, 18-year-old girls, uh, were killed in the attack. Others, hundreds of others, were injured physically, psychologically. Um, I went out to that school um, the other day. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And this attack happened a year after a complex attack on a maternity ward used by Hazara women where women giving birth and babies, newborn babies in cribs were murdered by attackers. This is dreadful. And Hazara people, it just, it just stops the heart when you think about it. And Hazara people are now starting to talk about 
the genocide against them. And when women of childbearing age, like 17 and 18-year-old girls at a school, and those giving birth are murdered, um, mm-hmm. you've got to think that there are genocidal uh, motivations for it. So there is a lot of sectarian and tribal tension here at the moment. And it is coming to the fore in the wake of the decision made by the United States and partners to to pull out and leave the Afghans to themselves. And all all of this comes with a government that is accused of and is seen as drawing uh, Pashtuns to itself and marginalising people who are not Pashtuns. And then you get down into the nitty-gritty of Pashtun tribal politics, which we won't go into here. Well, the gazelle Um, and the geranium thing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's all just very complex and um, mm. internecine and, and complicated. But uh, it, re- it, yeah. it, suffice to say, it's argy-bargy cats in a bag. I remember many years ago a Taliban soldier said to me that one camel was worth 14 Hazaras. <laughs> Now, how do you make? How do you work that out? You know exactly. I mean, you've got, it's just appalling, yeah, and those exactly. sort of comments are still being made in public by public figures in this country, and it really does not make people feel confident um, about whether or not they're protected or their interests are in taken into consideration by those in power. How do you think the future will shape up once the withdrawal is complete? Oh, Luke, you and I both know that peace takes a long time. It's a concept to start off with. Indeed. Um, um, I think uh, we've got years to go before Afghans, Afghan Mm. people, really work out what it is they want their country to look like. Right. Um, It's impossible for me to say. I think that, yeah, there'll be a Taliban slash conservative religious element represented at the highest levels in government and probably at provincial level as well. But I think that we really have to let Afghans and mm. the country is dominated by young people work yep. out what it is that they want. One of the biggest issues which I have seen happen here in Cambodia is how do you rid a country of the culture of war, the violence of war? How do you get rid of all the guns? Mm. And so you know, in Cambodia, that never really happened until uh, the turn of the century. It took that long to divide the factions, break them up, get rid of the guns, and then let a generation come along which isn't so gun savvy. Which you know they they're not driving around town on a motor dock yeah. with AK-47s and a couple of grenades in their belts. <laughs> it is a generational thing, um, and here you have. Um more than 40 years of it. Right. You know, started with the Soviets, then there was civil war, then there was the Taliban, and now we've just come into the end of 20 years, and there'll be a couple of years to go yet. So you're talking about half a century of of conflict and violence, and that really, it um, it gets into the, you know, saying it gets into the DNA is, is very harsh, and I don't think that's the case, but it is a generational problem. And yep. I said to a friend the other day, what you really need to do is, you know, deploy um, a dozen battalions of psychologists across the country because the people are just so desperately traumatised by the experiences of, a couple of, you know, a few generations by now. How do you get over violence being part of the psychology of the country? Right. And I think that, that it, it might not take another half a century, but it is going to take some time. 
and there needs to be first an awareness and you know psychoanalysis and psychology and counseling is not part of the landscape of uh, afghan culture mm-hmm. but on the other hand talking out you your grief is certainly part of afghan culture and when you when you say to and commiserate with an afghan person about the death of somebody close to them mm-hmm. i'm terribly sorry to hear about you know what happened to your father your mother your cousin your brother-in-law whatever mm-hmm. um they will share with you the the nittiest, grittiest detail of that experience. Right. So you cry together. And that is something that we don't have in Western culture. We bottle it up, we say thanks, we have a wake, funeral, that's the end of it, off we go. We ritualise it, but we don't, we don't talk it out and, and cry over it in public so much. And I think... Mm. Maybe that gives Afghan culture a, a head start. I don't know, but but I think that this, you know, these yep. Afghan people really need a lot of help and support to get over the horrific experiences that they've been through for the last half century. And I hope that we're all there for them to do that. Indeed. I mean, uh, you've just got me thinking about people we've both known who have uh, died in Afghanistan over the years and... Unfortunately, it's a very long list. Um, yeah, it is a long list. Okay. It's not uh, over yet. Right. Now, you, you were the author of um, High Tea in Mosul, which has done very well, a war book about British women uh, living in Iraq, and you've got a new book that's uh, coming out uh, next year, I understand. Tell me a little bit more about that. I'm quite fascinated by it. Oh, thank you. Well, um, at the moment, um, it's called From the Front Line, Women Reporting on War, 1899 to 2020. And the idea of this is to really um, bring to the public attention women who have been trailblazers as war correspondents for more than a century, a century and a half. We tend to think that with uh, people like Claire Hollingworth and Mm -hmm. Martha Gellhorn that we really didn't, you know, by we, I mean we girls, really didn't get into war reporting until maybe World War II and Vietnam. But it's been going on for a while. And so I've chosen a list of about a dozen women who I want to write about. And I also want to, uh, to find something that links their experience as uh, women who are, you know, let's face it, um, war reporting until very recently was um, dominated by men. Mm -hmm. And journalism is still at the very top of our craft, as you know, Luke, dominated by men. And I'd like to be able to look at uh, journalism as well through the eyes of the women that I write about and see, you know, what have been the changes and what these women have done that have enabled me to do what I do today and still do. Yeah. Tell me about one of the ladies you're writing about, auntie of Winston Churchill, I believe. Uh, yes, that's right. Her name um, was Sarah Wilson. She was born Lady Sarah Isabel Augusta Spencer Churchill. Great she name. One of the, yeah. <laughs> she was born in 1865 and she became one of the first women war correspondents in 1899 when she went to South Africa, what is now South Africa, to cover the siege of Martha King for the Daily Mail during the Boer War. She, of course, was very much um, integrated into... Um, the establishment and as was the the ownership of the Daily Mail and she went there and her reporting was very rah-rah and mm. um, 
very pro um, the the English effort, and what she really is remembered for is having been very much a morale booster for the um, for the English effort. Yeah. I've travelled a bit and covered a few conflicts, more than a few, I guess, but I've never seen a shortage of women on front lines and in Afghanistan and Iraq. I've never kind of sat there and said, you know, where are the female journalists, should they be here? But uh, kind of my generation, I think it's been taken as read that they are there and they do a very good job. I also think women bring a lot more to the job. It's a little bit like it's a lot easier for a female to interview another woman about her experiences and what she's been through. They can talk about facets of life where men would be uncomfortable in talking with a woman about, I think. I think you're right, Luke. I think that um, it adds an extra dimension, and I've often thought that, especially when we're covering conflict in Muslim countries and uh, women are largely not a able to speak freely and meet freely with men uh, unless they are related to them. So it does add that dimension for sure. Funnily enough, this is a little bit weird, I think. I'm, mm. I'm sitting in Kabul rereading Michael Hare's book about Vietnam oh, yeah. dispatches. Now, it's a sensational book, but you know what's missing from it is the civilian element and especially, you know, he was in Vietnam. He's not going out and talking to men, women and children on the Vietnamese side of that conflict. He's spending his time only with uh, the, um, the US military because until very recently, that's what war reporters did. Even women who were covering Vietnam and Korea and World Wars One and Two were, if you like, embedded, which is, you know, a, a word that's become our currency, mm -hmm. uh, with <laughs> the soldiers of, of the um, Allied effort. Yep. They were covering their soldiers. And even people like Claire Hollingworth were very rah-rah about the way the war was being conducted. And they wore uh, fatigues. And in Vietnam, they just had to register with the public affairs office and they showed up as if they had a, you know, a Eurorail pass and were able <laughs> to get on helicopters and buses and jeeps and go wherever they wanted yep. with the U.S. military. We don't do that anymore, you know. Yep. Um, the the U.S. military and NATO base here, Resolute Support, it's all they can do to answer a, an email that I send them. I, I can't get on the base. I can't get anyone to talk to me. There's a, there's a shutdown. Um, and so I'm here independently walking around talking to whoever will talk to me and invite me mm. into their office or their homes to talk to me. Where, so there is a very great difference now in what we do and how we do it yep. um, to what people of Claire's generation and Martha Gellhorn's generation were doing. I they were part of the Allied effort and we are not. It's an interesting point because I think that did kind of swing back during the invasion of Iraq when I was embedded and we could catch helicopters like we were catching a bus and we could go anywhere and do pretty much anything we liked. I didn't experience much interference at all with in terms of stories and filing. But I noticed after my second tour around late 2003 and early 2004 that there had been a distinctive change in attitude. You know, if, if you were from Fox News, you could have anything you wanted. If you were from the independent... Well, that's probably not fair, but <laughs> if you weren't from Fox News, don't expect anything. 
It was quite, well, quite an interesting change. That. It's funny that yeah. you should say that. I've never found that with the Americans. I've found a real shutdown with the Brits. Right. Um, wanting to read copy before you sent it, um, a real sort of old-fashioned censorship approach. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, the Americans, I've always found when I have been embedded with them, is anyone can talk and say anything because, you know, they have the First Amendment. Sure. Um, but um, embedded, you're, it's, it's, it, you know, the fact that uh, since the first Gulf War there has been an uh, embedded dimension to reporting has not meant that reporters have not been able to do unembedded stuff. Embed, that's true, yes, that's quite right. gives you access, yeah. right? Yes, um, and indeed. And not being embedded, embedded gives you um, another dimension. So I've never looked down on the concept of embedding with the military at all. I think that's Neither have really I, actually. Yep. extremely important perspective to be reported on, as is the other side. And now you have it that, you know, people tried to go and report on the other side in Iraq, in ISIS, with, um, you know, the, the, the takeover there by ISIS mm -hmm. and in Syria. They get caught put in cages, made to wear orange jumpsuits and have their heads cut off on camera. I mean, wh when the hell did that start happening? Yeah, no. It's, you know, uh, we've always thought of ourselves as being neutral and objective and if you want me to, you know, tell your side of the story, just invite me over and I'll tell you. But indeed, you in yeah. in a jumpsuit and on camera Ask and me. cut my head off, what the <laughs> fuck? Uh, okay, look, one final question. I wish we weren't running out of time, but <laughs> carnage in Kabul is not new. Uh, there have been more bombing attacks over the weekend. Mm. There, there seems mm. to be an inability sometimes to draw a distinction between who made the attack. Now, the three groups there really are, I guess, Taliban, Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. Can you compare them? Is that the relationship between them? It was always a difficult angle to get into. It, it, uh, many years ago, when Osama bin Laden was living in Kandahar with Muller Omar, the connections between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban were quite strong and easy to draw. Then arrived ISIS, as also the Pakistan Taliban. How do you uh, distinguish between them and who's responsible for what? Are they more closely aligned than we'd like to realise, or are they uh, very distinct fighting forces? Oh, I don't think that they're very distinct at all, Luke. Um, one of the uh, conditions that... Uh Trump and the Taliban agreed on in the um, uh, the deal that they struck in February 2020 was that uh, the Taliban would cut all ties with Al-Qaeda. Mm. Al-Qaeda's been here for 25 years. Mm -hmm. They're intermarried, you know, they live in the same villages, they all hang out together, they're all related. Yep. This is symbiotic. Um, there is no way that you can take the salt out of the sea. That's how I see it. Now, the attacks, the Taliban doesn't really like taking responsibility for attacks that kill little girls and women in hospitals. But I don't think for a minute that they disapprove. You can say that ISIS is, is responsible for it. Well, prove it, you know. What's yeah. the difference between ISIS and the Taliban when it comes to, to putting a sticky bomb on a minibus with innocent people on it? The distinction that um, used to be very easily made was with the Haqqani network. Mm -hmm. The Haqqanis are pretty brutal, but they're also um, very, very closely entwined with the Taliban and thus with Al-Qaeda. So, to be honest with you, I, I think that it comes down to semantics. 
the Taliban are the top of the tree at the moment. They've got the cred, they've got the political legitimacy and they've got the running. But when they waltz into Kabul, they'll be hand in hand with all the others, that's for sure. And on that note, Lynn O'Donnell, thank you very much. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Luke. I've really enjoyed our chat. Stay well.